Hello, hello. It's another episode of Causes or Cures. I'm Erin, and today we're going to talk about the keto diet. And I know, I know a lot of you guys who listen to this or read my Blooming Wellness blog follow the keto diet. You love it. You've noticed some health benefits on it. You've lost weight. You share your recipes. And I've tried some of the recipes, and some of them are pretty good. Um, but I don't actually follow the keto diet. I can't say that. But I also know people who hate it. They didn't like the way it made them feel. They couldn't maintain it for the long term. And, you know, those are the questions that I have. You know, guys, any diet, I think we all know, any diet, any sort of fad can work in the short term, right? We can lose weight fast if we want to. But can we maintain that? That's the trick, right? That's the trick of any diet. What diet can be maintained for the long term? And what sort of health consequences are we going to see in the long term? And how do these diets stack up to diets that are very well studied? For instance, the Mediterranean diet. The Mediterranean diet has a lot of randomized controlled trials. Um, it's well studied. It's well established. How does the keto diet compare to something like that? And, you know, in terms of both weight loss, health effects, disease, whatever. Those are the questions I have. So today I'm super excited to have on the line Dr. Shivam Joji. He is a doctor right here in New York City. He did uh, his, well, he went to medical school at the University of Miami and, and he did his internal medicine residency there. He also did a fellowship in nephrology at the University of Pennsylvania. So he is a kidney doctor um, and he's written a lot on this topic and also plant-based diets. But he recently, uh, pretty recently, wrote an article in JAMA, which is, you know, one of the top journals on the evidence or about the evidence base for the keto diet. So we're going to talk about that. And I'm also going to ask him some questions that some of my Blooming Wellness readers sent in and wanted me to ask him. So let's get started. So guys, on the line, we have Dr. Joshi, who is going to enlighten us about the keto diet. Um, so thank you so much for taking time out of your day to do this. No problem. My pleasure. Um, so you wrote the ketogenic diet for obesity and diabetes, enthusiasm outpaces evidence for JAMA, which I read in, um, July of, of last year. Um, so yep. I guess, yeah. So, um, the paper got a lot of traction and I was wondering if you can talk about, the evidence you used to write it and or how you, why you even became so interested in this topic? Yeah. So we, I, we were interested in this topic mostly from a perspective that um, people are saying carbs are bad, which is counterintuitive to everything that uh, my co-authors and I uh, know about unrefined carbs. Uh, so that, that's really what caught our attention. We've been paying attention in, in various ways to the low-carb movement, uh, something that I got interested in when I was uh, uh, a medical student at the University of Miami at the time. Uh, various low-carb diets were all the rage, so I was interested in, uh, I've always been interested in these diets. And the, the latest iteration of the low-carb diet um, is a ketogenic diet. Which, uh, to be fair, is actually a very low-carb diet, but it does fall into the umbrella of uh, low-carb diets. And um, 
the uh, the evidence that we used um, was evidence uh, that that is out there. It is uh, we used um, uh, various pieces of evidence. Uh, we we tried to rely on um, long term studies, uh, meta analyses, randomized controlled trials, um, and we also drew on literature from the pediatric uh, epilepsy research. And uh, and then we we, we wrote this piece. Um, uh, it it uh, it's meant to kind of ground uh, the enthusiasm uh, for a diet. Um, uh, uh, many of these diets that that come and go uh, uh, tend to have a lot of enthusiasm initially. Yeah. Uh, and th- this is just another one of those diets. Um, and I wanted to ask you, how did you guys define the keto diet? in terms of amount of carb versus amount of fat? Because I know there's different variations out there. Yeah, so the, yeah, so the, in general, the ketogenic diet uh, limits uh, the carbohydrates to about 5 to 10% of carbohydrates. So it's uh, uh, in terms of total energy. So uh, it, of your total energy intake, uh, 5 to 10% are coming from carbs. So that comes out to about uh, 20 to 50 grams of carbs per day. On average, um, and then to put that in perspective, so for example, um, a single banana uh, could put uh, someone uh, out of ketosis, or uh, could put them off of this diet uh, based on the size of the banana or how much how much carbs are restricting. So, for example, uh, a banana, uh, a 0.7 uh, of a banana or seven tenths of a banana equals about 20 grams of carbohydrates. But if you're limiting it to 50 grams, you can get uh, about 1.8. Uh, bananas uh, in your diet. So uh, this is just all for perspective to show that um, the, the bulk of the energy is actually coming from fat. Uh, in excess of 60 or 70 percent of calories are coming from fat, whereas protein uh, is recommended to be um, in the modest range. It's not a technically, it's, it, you're not emphasizing too much protein because too much protein can also uh, put someone out of ketosis. Um, so it's, it's generally around 10 or 15% of calories coming from, uh, protein. Um, and I, I looked at some of, uh, the meta analyses that you mentioned. Um, and I think one of them, uh, or it said that the keto diet led to a two pound weight loss over, um, a high carb, low fat diet, but it was, and you statistically significant, but you question whether it was clinically significant, which I appreciated because there is a difference between the two. A lot of people don't talk about that. Um, so can you make a comment on, on what you meant by that? Yeah. So what I meant, so, so it's probably helpful to, to put this in a little bit of context. I, um, I recently gave a, a webinar earlier this week um, where, I, where I, I tried to explain basically what we wrote in the paper. So um, what I, so to, to put it in context, if you look at the literature on weight loss diets, um, basically the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that if you restrict calories, if you cut back calories, you'll lose weight. It right. doesn't matter really how you do it. Um, as long as you're taking in less calories, um, you will lose weight. And that's what's been shown in a number of randomized controlled trials. Um, it, uh, they've been published in, uh, in big journals like JAMA and New England Journal of Medicine over the years. And there, there's many of them too. Um, in this webinar that I gave, uh, this past Wednesday, I, I, I spoke on four of them and one of them was a meta analysis and they all showed the same thing basically that 
if you restrict calories, um, you'll lose weight. But the more, most important thing about uh, any diet is how much you adhere to it. And um, so the diet doesn't really work, you know, if you're not on the diet. It kind of makes sense, you know. It's it, you, 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 you know, it's like a gym membership. It only works if you actually go to the gym. You know, everyone has a gym membership, but how many of us are actually going and actually use? So it's kind of the same thing with diets. You, you can say you're on a diet, but if you're not actually adhering to the diet and doing the diet and following it, um, then you're not going to lose the weight. But the, the purpose of a diet is basically to eat less. So it doesn't really matter which variation of diet you do. Um, as, as long as you're, you're just cutting back on calories. So what, what we were trying to say in that point is that um, is, is, the, is the keto diet better than any other diet? So when you look at these long-term uh, randomized controlled drugs, long-term in this sense is, is 12 months or more. Um, the, the weight loss com- compared to other, the other diet modality, which, was, uh, which they looked at in that um, meta-analysis, uh, was about uh, 1.9 um, uh, pounds more, uh, uh, or, or 0.9 kilos. So it, it wasn't it wasn't a whole lot more um, than the comparator, and that's pretty consistent with what we know uh, from the other trials that I just mentioned, saying that you know it doesn't really matter how you do it as long as you're cutting back on calories. So even though the the the, um, the the uh, the difference was statistically significant that they, they were able to detect this 0.91 kilogram difference between those on a ketogenic diet and those not on a ketogenic diet. Um, it may not be clinically significant because that's kind of the, the variation you might see uh, just for some, someone uh, weighing themselves, whether they ate a meal or had extra layer of clothing or a coat or something. It's not something you would detect um, if you didn't have uh, um, uh, someone's weight uh, in front of you. Um, right. And that, and that makes sense. And, and sometimes I think when headlines get published after a study, people sort of jump on them and they become trends, but, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're any, you know, they're, they're not the next biggest and greatest thing. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about, um, long-term glucose control, because a lot of people who've been diagnosed with type two diabetes, um, try keto, um, and, I guess the long-term glucose control is measured by hemoglobin A1C, right? It's just a, a blood test that you do. Did you find that glucose is better controlled, any different, uh, the keto diet versus a uh, low-fat diet? Yeah, so uh, there's, a, there's a meta-analysis there by Bueno et al. Um, that actually provides um, a kind of the backbone of, uh, of our piece that we published in JAMA and uh, last summer, and they looked at uh, weight, which was that's where I was uh, citing the the point nine one kilograms uh, difference right. in weight, and they also looked at uh, glucose control, as as you just asked. And in that study, uh, they found no difference uh, for those um, uh, who were diabetic uh, uh, and on the ketogenic diet for twelve months or more in a randomized controlled trial. So they didn't find any difference. The other interesting thing is is that. Uh, we were limited in the uh, number of citations we could uh, use in that paper. Um, but uh, what I explained in my, my recent webinar is that if you look at uh, studies, the short-term studies show a difference. And sometimes differences can be uh, sizable. So there's a 24-week study out there, and it shows uh, a difference of uh, 1.0% uh, between the two arms, those on a ketogenic diet and those on a controlled diet. But then this difference in the hemoglobin A1C control, hemoglobin C is the, the marker we use. It's a three-month average of blood sugars. 
that difference between those who are on the different diets tends to decrease as the duration of the study uh, gets longer. So at, so at 32 weeks, there's a study, that difference became, became 0.5%. At 52 weeks, it became 0.3%. And then the, the Bueno et al. meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials, that paper showed uh, no difference for studies greater than uh, 52 weeks, greater than or equal to 52 weeks. So, um, so the difference definitely decreases. The reason the difference decreases and the reason we're not seeing this uh, enormous um, difference in weight either between those on a ketogenic diet and those are not, uh, I think goes back to adherence. So, yeah. um, so as you were mentioning, you might, you might hear these anecdotes or these wildly successful stories uh, of people losing weight or uh, treating their diabetes. And those perhaps do get publicized and those may be short-term results. But if you look at uh, long-term studies for people on average, uh, you're not really seeing that. And I think the reason is, is, that, um, is that the diet is actually uh, difficult to adhere to. And that's just not me saying it, if you go back to the um, Bueno et al. meta-analysis, they actually have a table uh, in the paper which documents uh, from several of them, from several of the studies, uh, the amount of carbohydrates that were being consumed at the end of the study. Uh, not all the studies that they looked at reported this information, but the, it's table one. And in that paper, they have about 60 or 70 percent of the studies uh, reporting this information. And what's interesting is that nearly all the studies um, uh, that, that, do re- that do report this information show that the people actually at the end of the diet were not consuming um, uh, carbs consistent with the ketogenic diet. They're actually consuming more carbohydrates than would be allowed on the ketogenic diet, uh, which is kind of surprising uh, because if adherence is the most important thing for any diet, this diet is very difficult to adhere to. Oh, yeah. I, I've t- I tried... Well, I didn't really try. I tried a version maybe of this diet, but I found it incredibly difficult. And um, especially if you like like to work out and go running, I just I just found like um, my energy just was not where where it was. So um, I agree. Adherence is is really tough. I wanted to ask, did they I read I read through some of these studies and, you know, when they everybody kind of lumps everything together when they say carbohydrates, um, and, you know, that's what like, carbohydrates are bad. Um, but that's not true. Um, and there's, you know, there's unrefined versus refined. There's, you know, where, where exactly is your food coming from? And sometimes I find it hard to really get a grip on these studies and their results because I don't actually know what they mean by carbohydrates, like what people are actually consuming quality wise. Yeah, I don't exactly. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have more to say about that, but I think sometimes it's tougher to well, are the, you know, is this a good carbohydrate or is this, not that I like good or bad, but for simplification, is this a good carb or is this a bad carb? Like, what are they eating? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. The devil, the devil is always in the details. And so much of the literature, unfortunately, is just focused on these broad strokes and they look at macronutrients like carb intake, fat and protein. I think we're seeing a lot of conflicting information at times. You may hear a study that's saying low carb is bad or high carb is bad. There's actually a study that's, that shows both low carb and high carb, both uh, increased mortality. I think that's the Seidelman Lancet article that was published a year or two ago. But I think it's confusing because um, you can have uh, a high carb diet that's unhealthy, but you can also have a high carb diet that is healthy. And the difference between the two is in the quality of the carbohydrates. When it comes to fat, it's it's interesting because people recognize the difference in fats. Not all fats are the same. You have your trans fats, you have your saturated fats, you have your polyunsaturated, monounsaturated. 
you have healthy fats, bad fats. But when it comes to carbohydrates, people generally have amnesia about under, the understanding of the difference in carbohydrates. All carbohydrates are bad. We actually wanted to put into the paper that when we treat carbohydrates as bad, all carbohydrates, we are literally throwing the, the baby out with the bathwater, but then the editor said that their international audience would understand uh, that idiom. So we had to rephrase it in a different way. But I, I think people do that. Um, I think people do do that. And then they, they, people fear a banana or an apple uh, in yeah. the same way that they fear sugar or soda or a pastry or white bread. And I think that's unfair because diabetes epidemic and obesity and things like that are not being caused by an excess of fruits and vegetables. Um, one, because we're not even eating. Uh, t less than 10% of the population is meeting the minimum requirements for fruit or vegetable intake. Um, and then two, uh, there isn't evidence supporting that eating fruits and vegetables causes people diabetes. So for both of these reasons, I think people are mistaken, but that's just the, 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 what, what popular logic uh, is at this moment. Um, I agree with you 100% on that. And maybe that's an area for future study or um, distinction. Um, now, I, I, did, I read not everybody agreed with you. Um, and you got a lot of comments on this paper. Uh, and I know you, you, I know you wrote a response after this that was also published in December. Um, so what did, what, what, like, what can you say about that? How did you, how do you respond to people who say, oh, you're wrong. You didn't look at this. You didn't look at that. I mean, of course you'll always get that with anything, but, um, I know some people follow the keto diet like a religion. So. Right, right. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it, yeah, there were a lot of comments. A lot of people um, had thoughts. We got a lot of um, a lot of uh, opinions in various manners. Um, only, <laughs> I actually don't know how many people um, sent in their responses because JAMA only gave us uh, two of those, and those were the two that we responded to. But we made our, our, our points um, uh, there. Um, I think their their I think their their point was that. Uh, they had had several points, but um, uh, one of them was uh, uh, was the differences seen clinically significant, and we talked about that and how yeah. their, that study was limited, and then adverse consequences of the ketogenic diet, and then we talked about that as well. I mean, some of the concerns are the, the increase in LDL cholesterol, and then perhaps nephrolithiasis, which is a current interest of mine. Uh, which is kidney stones, and then um, and then uh, I, I, one of the the writers wrote back saying that uh, uh, you know we really don't have strong evidence to support a dietary pattern uh, that emphasizes fruits and vegetables from the perspective that we don't have long term randomized controlled trials. Uh, but it, but there was an argument made in in fellowship that if if the um, potential harm of fruits and vegetables is or if something is less then the burden of proof uh showing it uh proving its its worth uh should be lowered because what's the downside of eating too many fruits and vegetables uh you're, you're not going to get diabetes you're not going to get high blood pressure you're not going to get high cholesterol so i it, and we have a large amount a wealth of evidence from various sources uh long-term observational studies 
uh, mechanistic data, even short-term RCTs showing this benefit, and it's a signal that's pretty consistent. But the, but um, to to not recommend anything, I think, uh, leaves a vacuum and allows uh, these diets and other groups and uh, people with nefarious interests to, to dominate this space. And I think that's kind of what happened. I think uh, the lack of nutrition teaching in medical schools, the lack of um, being proactive by medical organizations to make recommendations and the hesitancy and the lack of value placed has kind of left um, diets and uh, fad diets and supplements to be a very uh, yeah. dominant uh, uh, industry uh, these days. Um, oh, oh, yeah, 100%. And plus, it's, uh, it's, it sounds like a quick fix, you know, like you'll lose the weight fast. So that's appealing. Um, to a lot of people. I, I wanted to ask, you mentioned some of the risk factors and, and that you were interested in um, kidney stones. Um, do you have any information on that? Like how often that happens when you're, when you're on the keto diet? Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm actually um, uh, looking into that right now. So in, in, from the adult literature, uh, believe it or not, we actually have zero studies um, uh, looking at it. Um, no one, no one really knows from the adult literature, but it, but if we look at the pediatric literature, so the ketogenic diet has been used uh, for patients with pediatric epilepsy uh, since the turn of the 20th century. Um, uh, this guy, Dr. Wilder at the Mayo Clinic, uh, published a study, I think in 1921, uh, showing its use. And then since then, so literally for nearly the past 100 years, um, uh, pediatric neurologists have been using this diet to treat uh, children who have um, seizure disorders. So from that literature, we know that uh, children on this diet uh, do develop kidney stones. And the, the range of, of, uh, of, of how common uh, children develop kidney stones range goes from 2 to 25%. Um, so it's a sizable range. Well, 2% is not so bad, uh, people might say. But when you look at the studies, the, the, it tends to, to predominate around 10 to 15%. The average incidence of kidney stones in the population is around 10% anyways, but if so, if it's mm. higher than 10%, it, this could be an even greater risk than the standard American diet uh, uh, causes, the risk that's caused by, uh, for kidney stones. Um, there, are so, there, are, there are potential reasons for why kidney stones could form on the diet. Um, uh, the diet is consistent with what we know does cause kidney stones. For example, eating a high amount of animal protein does acidify the urine and promotes the increase in kidney right. stones. Uh, many of the foods consumed do increase the amount of calcium that's put out into the urine, which increases the risk of kidney stones. Um, there's also a decline in um, uh, this uh, compound called citrate in the urine, which is likely reflective of the acidosis, not only in the foods being consumed, but the acidosis that's generated from the diet itself, uh, from being in ketosis, that also likely uh, promotes um, kidney stone formation. And then there's other reasons like uh, the lack of water content in many of these foods since people aren't eating uh, many plant-based foods which tend to be have a higher water content. And then things like uh, stone in inhibitors, things that would prevent the stone formation like your micronutrients like potassium and magnesium that you may not be getting on a ketogenic diet that could also promote the risk of stone. So there's a lot of the theoretical risk and people are looking into it now. So time will tell um, and we'll have more solid evidence. But for the time being, it's just one of those things that with, with this diet, I know people are, are jumping onto it, but we don't know if he'll give you a stone a month from now, let alone 
what will happen 10 years from now? Does it increase your risk uh, for having a heart attack or stroke because LDL cholesterol is going up? We just don't know. We don't know the safety. And I think people need to take that um, uh, into account. One of the analogies I make is that if this were a medication and it was going for approval um, or you were coming across and had to decide whether to take it, this medication has um, this, this, the same benefit as perhaps other dietary therapies, for example, or other, other options. Uh, the risks for it are, uh, are, are there in some regards in increasing LDL and other things. Um, and then long-term uncertainty is unknown. And then the alternatives of this are, are plentiful. So then if phrased like that, would you choose to uh, take this medication or, uh, or, this, or this dietary therapy? And I think a lot of people would, would pause and, and uh, uh, consider what's in front of them. Yeah. And I think too, when I looked at the studies, like long-term was really around a year, but for me, long-term should go a lot longer than that. And I think that that would be my concern, like, you know, what, what's happening from 10, 10 years to 15 years out. Um, I, I did want to ask, do you think it can be, like you mentioned the pediatric population that has the seizures. Um, I also was reading because uh, I'm interested in PCOS just because it's the most common, I think it's the most common endocrine disorder and it's associated with high insulin and obesity and all that, as you know. Um, but they seem to have some success on the keto diet. Uh, I, I don't know if you've done research on that or not. Or looked uh, into I, that. No, I haven't looked too much into that. Um, well, it might, it might be something to, uh, just because I was like, maybe it's a diet that benefits certain, you know, cohorts of the population. Um, but, I, so I just, I want to ask a few questions that my listeners, I told them you were going to be on the show and they are very interested in the keto diet. So sure. if you don't, <laughs> so this was one question that, um, someone asked, does it give the pancreas an opportunity to rest and the liver? And I think in the, when she was talking about the, the pancreas, she was referring to the cells that produce insulin. Yeah. So I don't it, know. I guess that's something yeah, out there. Yeah. I don't know how to, to answer that. I, I mean, um, is, is, is resting good? Like is, I mean, the, yeah. the, the purpose of the pancreas and the liver, um, are to support daily life physiologically. The, the, those are organs there to maintain life. Um, the concern in uh, in these states, in states of caloric excess and diabetes and obesity, is that, um, uh, for example, the liver is being damaged perhaps from from too much fat, and then perhaps the pancreas is is working more, so to speak, maybe producing more insulin. And maybe in that regards, the ketogenic diet we see we don't you 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 are seeing. One would imagine a less of a rise in um, the amount of insulin being produced, um, and perhaps because the glucose is not going up. But I caution against that. It, it does make intuitive sense. So if you're eating less carbs, your blood sugar won't go up. Um, you need less insulin, and there are studies looking at that. But what's concerning is that is that eating more fat makes it harder for the body to metabolize glucose. So there's this, and th this this information actually dates back almost 100 years, and that's what I was. Um, th that's uh, I mentioned this in my webinar uh, this past Wednesday. Um, is that so? There's a few studies looking at this. So the the study that um, going back to 1921, um, uh, sorry, 1927, it's uh, Sweeney et al. and JAMA. 
they they took a bunch of uh, I think they were medical students and divided them into different groups and they ate a lot of um, fat protein or carbohydrates and what they did was at the end of uh, two days of doing this they fed them uh, a fixed amount of glucose and then measured their blood glucose levels so basically they did an oral glucose tolerance test um, many women are familiar with this because during pregnancy the guy uh, the obstetrician uh, will recommend uh, to do this to, to determine if uh, if the if the uh, of the if the the lady has uh, gestational diabetes, and um, we can't do hemoglobin A1C in those situations because pregnancy is only nine months, and then you maybe in your second, first or second uh, month of pregnancy, and then to rely on that three-month average doesn't fully capture what's going on in that moment. So an oral glucose tolerance test is done, and what that is is uh, you get uh, a fixed amount, like 175 grams of glucose. Um, and then uh, uh, blood sugars are measured after that, and there's uh, curves uh, establishing what is normal at what time period, and then you can see um, if you're within that range or above. So this is what st- was done in this 1927 study, and what they showed is that the people who actually ate fat for the two days prior to the oral glucose tolerance test, uh, the blood sugars went up the most compared to those who are on the exclusively or almost exclusively protein diet or the almost exclusively carbohydrate diet, which is kind of interesting and counterintuitive. And subsequently, so, so that data is, is relatively old and has limitations. So subsequently, there was a 2012 study published by Numao et al. that showed the same thing pretty much. They took nine healthy young men and they fed them uh, a diet uh, that was high in fat or a normal diet. And the people actually eating the high fat, low carb diet actually had higher blood sugars than those who were eating a normal diet. They didn't do the oral glucose tolerance test. That was just them eating a low-carb, high-fat diet. Again, it wasn't ketogenic. Uh, many of the ketogenic proponents say, oh, the ketogenic diet is different because you produce these ketones and it's more carb restriction. Okay, fine. There was a study published last year by Rosenbaum et al. in Obesity that looked at this, this specific issue. And they fed 17 men uh, a diet that was ketogenic or a, a kind of like a standard American diet um, uh, that was like a mixture of protein, carbs, and fat. It was 50% carbs, 35% fat. And the ketogenic diet was what, what anyone would consider ketogenic, 5% carbs, 8% fat, 15% protein. And they fed both arms for four weeks. And then they did this. Um, it wasn't a uh, glucose tolerance test, but what they did was that they, they fed them a meal that was uh, a mixture of protein, carbs, and fat. It wasn't a ketogenic meal. Uh, it, it was more like a, a balanced meal, what we would consider. And then they looked at how much was the rise in glucose in both arms. And again, you see this increase in glucose actually in the people who are eating the ketogenic diet or a diet that was high in fat. So what? So it's so what's happening? What we think is that even though you're avoiding carbs in the moment uh, on the ketogenic diet, and and you are uh, preventing that rise in glucose. Um, one, it's only dependent if you're on the diet, but two, you may not be fixing the underlying problem that is causing diabetes. So in that moment, you, your, your blood sugars are, are, are good or better. But mm-hmm. if you were, if you were, say you ate uh, a carbohydrate load or ate a banana or an apple, your, your blood sugars actually may be even higher than they would be had you never been on the ketogenic diet. So it's kind of like, it's like a rebound, um, rebound kind of, it's like a spike effect or something. I don't know. 
Yeah, and so these improvements in hemoglobin A1C are, are, should be taken with a grain of salt. So the hemoglobin C is improving, but you haven't really gotten rid of the underlying perhaps insulin resistance. So um, to go back yeah. to your listener's question, are you giving the pancreas a rest? You may be giving the pancreas a rest, but you may be doing it at the expense of actually worsening the underlying diabetes problem. Um, wow, that's interesting. Um, somebody else asked, well, I think somebody who's on the keto diet asked if reducing sugars, of, if, if reducing sugar alcohols should be included in that equation. And I know you don't recommend the keto diet, but <laughs> I don't know if you can comment on that. Reducing sugar alcohols? Yeah, I'm assuming like sugar substitutes. Oh, I don't uh, know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I fully understand. Yeah. Um, how about this one? I didn't really understand that one either, but how about this one? Um, this is the last one from the listeners. Are, are there any people that you know? I know that the people always talk about populations um, that survive uh, in ketosis for a long time. Um, so can you comment on that? Yeah, and that that was a, a comment that we got to in, uh, in this process. People are saying that people... Uh, living ketosis for so, I, ketosis does happen from time to time naturally. If you look at if it, from our understanding of, and even this is controversial, um, what happened in evolution? Were we truly going, you know, alternating between feast and famine? There pro- undoubtedly there probably were moments where um, our, our ancestors uh, were uh, in states of food. Um, depletion or, or were in starvation and in those times there was ketosis uh, but how frequently was it was it happening like on a daily basis we don't know some people say that there were these fallback foods and then you know the people didn't enter ketosis because they could always find uh, something that they could eat that was perhaps undesirable but would still provide them with calories so that part is unclear but I think what is clear is that I don't think people were generally in these states of chronic ketosis unless they were in the uh, 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 the polar areas where they're not going to find um, these carbohydrate-rich foods. But even then, um, there's actually a genetic mutation in the uh, uh, Inuit that prevents them from going into ketosis, which is actually very interesting. And so, wow. and I, yeah, and um, I don't know if we had a chance to cite it because we were only limited to six or seven references in that JAMA piece. But um, so, so that, that brings into question, why would a population develop this mutation in general um, mutations generally de- in general if, if we if we see there's uh, some some mutations are maladaptive but some mutations can be beneficial so we're trying to understand why that is the case we can only theorize that perhaps this mutation was beneficial uh, because not having it perhaps was more dangerous the the, the presence of this mutation is fairly common Amongst the Inuit, off, off the top of my head, I think it's 70 or 80% from what I remember correctly. I, I may be wrong on that, but it, it was relatively common. And the only reason we could think of is that perhaps in a situation where you are also uh, ill or in time of stress or during infection, that the added acidosis from that stressor um, probably puts someone at risk for um, even worse outcomes, perhaps uh, like like severe acidosis that you might see in someone who's septic, and then these people may be more predisposed to dying. I'm not sure, and I don't, and no no one can really be sure, but it's just one theory. 
but it is it's certainly interesting and it requires more research. But that what populations are are, are in states of of uh, chronic ketosis or are eating ninety uh, percent of their diet and fat. All all the populations that are nonpolar, um, which is the bulk of human civilization, the bulk of or human ancestors, were eating diets that contain more than five to ten percent of carbohydrates. Um, so that's a that's basically a myth then um, that people can do that. Uh, I, I so I just I want to ask one final question um, since you're a kidney doctor too. Um, <laughs> Um, what, I think I read somewhere that you follow a plant-based diet. Is that true? Yeah, I, I do follow a plant-based diet. And is but, that one you'd recommend or like in terms, if people are, you know, people are always looking for, right. I mean, they're always looking for diet advice. Um, and I, I actually see a lot of people switching to a plant-based diet, but do you have any recommendation in terms of what people should be eating or in terms of longevity or decreased mortality or morbidity and all of that? Yeah, so the plant, so the plant-based diet we we recommend, and the one that I practice and I tell my patients is one that emphasizes the consumption of whole plant-based foods. So it's not going to be your Oreos or your, you know, your your um, con candy or, or things like that. These things that are technically um, from plants, like sugar and things like that. But what we want to emphasize the consumption of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, lentils, nuts, seeds, things like that. Um, that, that provide the, the bulk of the calories in the diet, uh, and there is it, it's it's a diet that emphasizes uh, um, zero to to minimal consumption of unhealthy foods, including uh, fried foods and junk food, and then also um, animal based products. Uh, there's varying definitions. It's it's dependent upon ultimately where people land. It's dependent upon a number of things. Um, uh, like uh, culture and and their friends and family and preferences and their circumstances, um, but uh, in general, what you, what we do see throughout the literature and um, from multiple uh, sources of evidence is that uh, the consumption of fiber-rich, nutrient-dense foods like these um, do are are consistently associated and at times even uh, causative of uh, positive health outcomes. And there's studies to support this. Like uh, we see, you know, the people uh, reference the Mediterranean diet or the DASH diet or flexitarian diet or these various diets. What they all have in common, Ornish diet, what they all have in common is that a bulk, the bulk of the foods being consumed are from plant-based sources. So um, that that's pretty um, safe territory to tread on when considering um, how to improve uh, one's diet. Um, yeah, and, and thank, I just want to thank you so much for your time. It, uh, it was very interesting, and uh, I look forward to the feedback on this. And I guess, and do you, you have more publications coming out in this area, or you're working on and working on the kidney stone one? Yeah, yeah, we're 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 um, always working on things. We, we should have <laughs> some more things coming out in the near future, and then yes, hopefully some information coming out on kidney stones. Uh, well, that'll be really interesting. And thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Uh, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to to be on your show. Um, Absolutely. Happy to come back. Yeah, I learned a lot. And I'm sure my listeners will too. So I really appreciate it. No problem. Pleasure was mine. <laughs> Have a good rest of your day. You too. Thanks. Sure. Bye. Bye.
Thank you so much for listening, guys. Thank you to Dr. Joji for your time. I know I learned a lot and hopefully my listeners learned a lot. As always, I'm going to link to the article that we talked about, the the one on the evidence base for the keto diet. And if you follow the keto diet, if you're interested in it, I definitely think it's worth reading. Um, It's very well written. It's easy to understand. So check that out. And I just want to say one thing I mentioned during the interview that the keto diet was used by women who have PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. And it is, I think I said it was the most common endocrine disorder. That's not what I meant. It's the com- a common endocrine disorder. I don't know if it's the most common, but I believe it is in women of reproductive age. And um, so that's worth looking into too. Um, all right, guys, that's it. Hope you subscribe. And if you have any questions, as always, you can leave a comment on my blog or a comment at the podcast site. Actually, I don't know if you can do that, (laughs) but you can email me, erin at bloomingwellness.com. Thanks, guys, and everyone go out there and have a great day.